Our text is Psalm 137. Psalm 137. It's a psalm which can be dated to the time of the Babylonian exile in the 6th century B.C. And the horrors of the Babylonian invasion we've talked about before in this series on the Psalms and in other places, they're described many places in Scripture. And along with the Exodus... This Babylonian invasion and exile is one of the two great formative, disruptive events which shaped Israel's memory. If you look, for example, at Psalm 79, it describes the Babylonian invasion. It speaks of God's inheritance, his people being invaded, of the holy temple being defiled. It speaks of Jerusalem, the city being laid waste. Psalm 79 speaks of the bodies of God's people being given to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. Their blood, it says, is poured out like water all around Jerusalem. And their corpses are left to rot without burial. And their survivors are carried off as prisoners. And the nation is subject to taunts and mockery. It's that sadness, right, which provokes or is the background for a text like this. And both the sadness and the surprising, even the shocking end, the conclusion of our text, our response to that raw and still open wound. And so we'll make three points. The outline of of them is on the back of the bulletin, back inside page. Remembering Zion, remembering Jerusalem, and remembering Babylon. So, the first thing here to see is uh, in remembering Zion... Again, Psalm 137, verse 1. By the rivers or by the waters of Babylon, we sat and we wept. Babylon, roughly Mesopotamia, roughly Iraq today. Babylon was a land of great rivers, the Tigris and the Euphrates being the chief among them. But Daniel and Ezekiel both received visions at different rivers in Babylon. By the rivers of Babylon, the poet says, we sat down and wept. The rivers here become the outward symbol of the rivers of tears shed by the captive people of God, the exiled people. It's a scene of great dejection, even depression. You sit And weep when you're going to weep long, when you're disconsolate, when your tears cannot be numbered. They weep, the text says, because they remembered Zion, the place of the temple, the place of the joyful public of worship of God now burned to the ground, now desolate and forsaken. I mean, think of it. They had lost children and lands. They had lost their liberty and goods. But above all, they had lost, and they remember with grief, Zion. 
It's a lesson about the centrality of the gathered public worship of God in the lives of his people. It was Zion that was the center of their identity and their dignity and their hope as a people. There's no mourning in Psalm 137 because they lost their 401k. Oh, the farm is gone. I mean, quite possibly here, the poet and the we, the ones who sat down and wept, were temple singers. Verse 2 tells us on the, on the willows or on the poplars, they hung their harps. They put away their instruments. So these were probably members of the temple guild who sang in the public worship of God, who played. But this was the time to mourn. And on top, on top of these already unbearable humiliations of the exile, imagine this, in verse 3 it says, There, meaning there in Babylon, our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. It's a cruel psychological warfare. They want to mock. And they want to humiliate the singers. They want to celebrate their helplessness. In the, uh, in the Nazi death camps of Treblinka, the Jews were forced to sing and to dance and to celebrate their Jewishness. It's that same vicious, sadistic spirit that's on display here in this text. Go ahead, sing us one of the songs of Zion. These songs, the songs of Zion, are not just any songs. These are the psalms which celebrate the temple and the worship there. They would be songs like Psalm 46, 48, 84, 87. Songs which celebrate the city as the center, the place of the great king, the place of protection, the place of deliverance, the place where they thought they were safe, the place they thought was impregnable and indestructible, the center of Israel's joy. And so their captors are joining those mockers in Psalm 42 who say, where now, where now is your God? So they want the songs of Zion for their snide public amusement. And so the captives sit And they cry, and they weep in their dejection, and they remember, and they remember Zion. The second point, remembering Jerusalem. In verse 4, they begin to answer the taunts. They're being taunted. And they say, how can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? Now, for us, for us, the answer to that question seems fairly obvious. It would be, well, rather easily, just start singing them. One place for worship is as good as any other place. I mean, how hard is it to answer the question? In fact, the Jews would eventually settle down in Babylon. And they'd build synagogues there. And they'd sing again. 
But even then, they'd be singers in exile. Singers whose songs could not be full until Zion and Jerusalem were restored. But here, right now, at this moment, the wound is still raw. The time's not right. And to submit to the demands of their captives for songs of joy would be to defile their songs. It would be fraudulent to sing songs of joy in this context. And, And that brings us to an irony about Psalm 137. And I think it's an irony which can be missed. They hung up their harps. They refuse the demand of their captors for songs of joy. But notice this. They gave them, and they gave Israel, and they gave you, they gave us a song. This song. Psalm 137. And this song is a lament. The only appropriate song for the circumstances. This is the time for tears. And and this is a phenomenon that we can sort of also glide around. But the Bible is full of laments. There's laments in the historical books. One of the chief forms of the Psalms is the Psalm of Lament. There are laments throughout the prophets. There's a book of lamentations. Jesus in the gospel is lamenting. The gospel lesson this morning was a lament. The book of Revelation, the New Testament lesson this morning, is full of laments. And this lament form, to point out the obvious, is not a popular form in our day. It's not popular. I don't know, because I'm not part of that world, I don't know how laments work in modern praise music culture. But I suspect they're rare. But I'm guessing that overhead projectors are allergic to laments. (laughs) But we need to take the log out of our own eyes if we're more traditional in orientation. Because you can thumb through our hymn hymn books and you'll find that laments are rare indeed. Very rare. The church has plenty of praise music. Some of it is good. Some of it is, frankly, lamentable. Yes, that's a cheap pun, I know. Um, But because some of it's lamentable, we need more laments. We need more laments. I know you may not have come here this morning to hear that. It's not like there isn't an overabundance of material for laments. The stuff is literally falling out of the sky. Young songwriters have to work to not trip over the stuff. Yeah, I think I'll skip that continent. I want to write a happy song. Nobody, it seems, is writing any laments, right? Where's a young person with a guitar who says, yes, I'm a writer of casual, user-friendly laments? Psalm 137, like lots of psalms, is a lament. It's a form which has virtually disappeared. 
Is there a lament hour on your local Christian radio station? Welcome to Saturday evening laments. <laughs> right? No, we don't have that. Who needs that? We need that. And we need them for the same reason Israel needed laments. Because we laments structure our grief. They document the trauma. They renew our identity. They revive our hope. They deliver us from plasticity. We need them because they're true to the contours of existence. And without them, Christian praise becomes sentimental and sappy and unreal and unbelievable. And that's how the world hears us. Tinny and thin. You simply can't cut this out and then be left with something which is in fact true to the contours of human existence. That's why Psalm 137 and many other texts are in your Bible. Yes, it is. we are in the New Covenant. We're not in Israel's position. We have come to Mount Zion. And joy is the dominant note in Christian praise. I'm not suggesting otherwise. But we're not fully home. We're waiting for Zion and for Jerusalem to be restored. We're waiting for the descent of the holy city at the end of the age. We're still in the time of displacement, of wandering, of sojourners. This is the time of death and injustice and suffering and longing and yearning and crying for vindication. And so, in an ironic way, the singers of our text will indeed sing the Lord's song on alien soil, but they are not going to forget that they sing as exiles. They sing away from their homeland. And to some extent, that is true of every song you sing. We are in Christ. That is true. We have come to Mount Zion. That is true. But we are waiting. And thus, we sing as exiles. And to that effect, they vow. Notice this in the psalm. They vow, beginning in verse 5, If I forget you, Jerusalem, not merely Zion now, but Jerusalem, the temple city, if I forget Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you. They call down a curse on themselves, on their own bodies. They're saying, may the hands that play and the mouth which sings shrivel up if I forget Jerusalem. Something has happened in this psalm. When they remembered Zion at the beginning of the text, it was, it was dejection, a dejected remembrance. But it is now becoming a defiant remembrance. They're saying to their captors, let my hands shrivel up if I do what you ask me to do. This is what true hope does. Hope that is grounded in the God who raises the dead, who calls into being the things that are not, who restores the exiles. Hope like that moves you from dejection to defiance. There's a real strain of resistance in Psalm 139. Resistance, not romanticism. That's what righteous laments give the church. And since we don't have righteous laments, we have more romanticism than we have resistance. Laments give the church substance. 
There's not going to be any Stockholm Syndrome for these captives. We will neither give Babylon our songs, they're saying, nor will we forget our homeland. Jerusalem may be in ruins. We will not forget. We vow to remember and in due time to sing. And indeed to sing in our homeland again. You'll notice at the end of verse 6, they say that Jerusalem is my highest joy. We see this repeatedly in the Psalms. God cannot be separated from his city. Joy in God means joy in his city, in his church, in his worship. It means joy in the place which is to be the joy of the whole earth. This is why this was so devastating to Israel. This place which is leveled is to be the joy of the whole earth. Finally, remembering Babylon, verse 7. Remember, Lord, what the Edomites did on the day Jerusalem fell. You can read about this in Obadiah, the prophet Obadiah, how the Edomites, who were descendants of Esau, their brothers, their relatives of Israel, their land is adjacent to Israel's. They sided with Babylon when Babylon invaded. They gloated. And they rejoiced in the fall of Jerusalem. And you can hear that echo in this psalm. Tear it down, they cried. Tear it down to its foundations. In the conflict between Jerusalem and Babylon, they took Babylon's side. And Babylon is addressed next. Daughter Babylon. She's addressed as a young lady. She's a false bride. She's the city which stands in contrast to Zion. Here the poet says she's doomed to destruction. He says, happy or blessed is the one who repays you according to what you have done to us. And you know, of course, the famous and provocative last line of this psalm, which I'll get to in a minute. But a few things are important right here before we get to the the stark conclusion. The first to see is this. The psalmist is asking God, God, to remember Edom and Babylon, to remember their treachery. And so what he's really doing is he's asking God to act as the righteous judge. That's what he's doing. The second thing is that this cry here is about strict justice. What what was known in the law as the lex talionis, the law of retaliation. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Which is the foundation of any just legal order. The punishment has to fit the crime. Notice notice the end of verse 8. It's a cry that they be repaid, note this carefully, according to what they have done to us. And so third, this is not a cry for personal vengeance. It's a corporate lament. It's a plea to God to be zealous for his city. There's no suggestion here in this psalm that they or the other Jews should take matters into their own hands. Personal vengeance is forbidden in both Testaments. What's going on in Psalm 137 is they are presenting the evidence of what happened to the divine judge and they're asking him to remember. 
Another thing to see here is that the prophets of the exile, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Obadiah, they had in fact declared that God, although God was using Babylon to judge Israel, that he would bring judgment on Babylon. And so, the cry for justice here is not merely a bitter reaction to events. It's a response to the prophetic word. It's an appeal to Scripture and to the God of Scripture. And so that brings us to the conclusion. Happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. Now, the context requires us to say that Babylon did just this when Israel invaded. Right? The prayer is that they would be repaid according to what they have done to us. So the backdrop is the Babylonians took Israelite babies and smashed them and killed them. The practice is well attested in the Old Testament world as a standard form of warfare. You can find it in Homer's Iliad as well. It's, it's not hard to find examples of this. It may not be strictly literal, but it's at least a metaphor for destroying or cutting off the enemy's offspring as a way to cut off their future. So, for example, when Babylon invaded, they killed King Zedekiah's sons right in front of his eyes. Right? And, milita- and invading militaries often would do this. You would kill the offspring of those you conquered to make sure they didn't rebuild. And so Babylon had done this. And Isaiah used this very language, dashing your little ones against the rocks to describe what would happen when judgment was repaid or when it fell on Babylon. So, Is this the raw cry of a brutalized people? Yes, it is. But that should not obscure the fact that it is a cry for justice and divinely predicted justice at, at that. And we've seen this before. We've seen that this cry is not limited to the Old Testament. This cry is being prayed right now in this very hour, by the martyrs in heaven. Who are saying, how long, O Lord, holy and true, until you avenge our blood? So, we have to be people who are careful about what we're offended by. Moderns read Psalm 137, they get to the last line, they're aghast, they throw their hands up. Shocking, appalling. Not realizing that the same prayer is being prayed by the saints before the throne of God who were martyred for the word of God. This regularly happens to me. Someone will say, I find this thing in the Old Testament to be offensive. To which I say, you know Jesus says something much more offensive than that, don't you? Or you know that Jesus says that exact same thing in four different ways. For some reason, people are not as offended when Jesus does it. But when it happens in the Old Testament, 
there's all sorts of difficulties. And I understand the difficulties, but here, this is simply a cry for justice. Remember, the matter's being left to God here. He avenges, we don't. Like Israel, what do we do? We wait. We wait in hope. We witness. We lament. We lament. We sing. We pray. But the reality that we're praying for, the reality that we're praying for and the scarred history, which is its backdrop, can't be scoured away. Right? It can't, you, you can't, you can't you know, skim over the top of it. It's implied every time we pray the Lord's Prayer. When we pray the Lord's Prayer, we pray for His name to be hallowed, His kingdom to come. That means the end of opposing kingdoms and opposing powers. And so one of the lessons, beloved, one of the lessons of Psalm 137 is to immunize us against sanitized praying. Right? Hallmark praying. Prayer that takes justice seriously is going to lament. It's going to pray for holy vengeance. But only a people safely ensconced away from history's violence can be offended by the poor and the shattered crying out for justice. And you know what happened? The Babylonians soon fell to the Persians. And Babylon becomes a symbol in Scripture for all these regimes which oppose the kingdom of God. And what's ironic is that Jerusalem herself, in the rejection of Jesus, becomes a Babylon, receives divine judgment at the hand of the Romans in 70 A.D., And what's remarkable about that judgment in 70 A.D. is it gives us the only New Testament allusion or reference to this text. The only verse of Psalm 137 which is alluded to in the New Testament is remarkably verse 9, the offending verse in everybody's eyes. And the one who alludes to it, Jesus Christ. In Luke 19 which was the gospel lesson, I guess read from here, the gospel lesson this morning, Jesus tells Jerusalem, he's weeping, and he says to Jerusalem, you're going to be surrounded by your enemies, and they will dash you to the ground, you and your children within you. That's Jesus citing Psalm 137 of his own city, through tears, which has become a Babylon in rejecting him. He is the rock against which Babylon, the Babylon Jerusalem has become, will be smashed and shattered. And then Babylon reappears. Reappears in the book of Revelation. That was the New Testament lesson this morning. She appears there as a harlot, a counterfeit bride, And I won't go into the whole thing. You can read Revelation 18, but she is seated on many waters. That's an allusion to Psalm 137, by the waters of Babylon. We sat and wept. And when Babylon falls, 
John says, take away all her songs, all her mirth, all her singing, all her dancing, all her joy. You know why? Because back here in Psalm 137, she tormented my people. And in an arrogant, sadistic way said, let me hear some of your songs of joy. The Jerusalem for which our psalmist longed, which he remembered, they did return to it. But as I've said, it eventually became a harlot city and was destroyed. It's hard to follow this, I know. You're, you're thinking you may need a scorecard. But it is hard to, to follow the Babylon-Jerusalem thread, especially when Jerusalem becomes a Babylon. But it's important to follow it because it's the narrative of the Bible. Jerusalem becomes a Babylon and is destroyed and is reformed into the the new Jerusalem, the temple city of the church, the Mount Zion to which you've come and for which you are waiting. And so the, the whole of history can be narrated as belonging to one of these two cities, one of these two brides, one of these two women. One either belongs to Babylon and all of its seductive rebellion, or one belongs to Jerusalem, the Zion of God. The Edomites made their choice. People are always making their choice. They sided with Babylon. And so this is finally a text which does ask us some things. Even as we're enveloped. In Babylonian systems, we are both, this is also important to get, we are both as a people in Babylon, enmeshed in Babylon, and in Mount Zion. This is part of the ambiguity, and frankly the complexity of Christian existence. You are not in one place or another. You're a sojourner who is in Babylon, enmeshed in the cultural systems and regimes of the age, but you have come to Mount Zion but you have not fully come to Mount Zion. And so we're enveloped. We're surrounded by Babylon-like powers, monster states, apostate churches, corrupt and vulgarized cultures. Which side are you on? Which city are you going to choose? Because you're both in exile from your homeland and waiting for Babylon to fall and marching towards your homeland. Situating the Christian life is important. Psalm 137 helps us situate it. It's sort of like getting your bearings. Because this picture can be drawn in other ways. Like, it can be drawn in stark ways which are fundamentally distortions and false. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm in Jesus and therefore I'm not anywhere else. Or, I'm, I'm at my citizenship's in heaven, therefore I have no earthly citizenship. Or, or the like. It turns out that the picture is more like the picture of Psalm 137. You're exiled in Babylon, but, you're desti- but you belong to the Lord and you're destined to return to Jerusalem. So the question is, what do we do now? I think the text is pretty clear. We weep, we remember, and we refuse to become defiled even if we're ridiculed and mocked. We sing the songs of Zion. Even the joyful songs of Zion, we still sing as strangers. We still sing as exiles. And we sing this song, and we sing other lamentations. If you're a young, talented, musical person out there, write laments. 
We refuse to forget Jerusalem. We prize her as our highest joy. And that means we forget, we refuse to forget that the city to which we belong is yet out in front of us, stretched out, ready to descend from heaven. And that means we have no lasting city here. And we pray for the fall of Babylon, all Babylonian systems, because we pray for the just and everlasting kingdom of the Lord and his Christ to come in its fullness. Amen.